Okay, uh, good morning or good afternoon, depends on where you are. Um, so welcome to the SDR divisions. Uh, this is the Stronger Together Meet the Scholar series. And uh, today we are very honored to have Professor Ensri with us to share with her insights and experience with, uh, with all of us. And then uh, thanks, Anne. Um, I am Guoli Chen. So I'm going to be the moderator for this session because I'm the executive committee of the SDR division. And this is a true team effort. And uh, first, thanks, Samina Karin, for her great initiative to set up this whole series of sessions. And I'm also assisted by Shavi Guy. So he's, she's going to join Michigan State after this summer. And also, I am assisted by Jiao Luo. So uh, please allow me to spend a few minutes to have a quick introduction of Anne and also highlight several of her achievements in the past. Uh, and it's the adjunct, uh, sorry, Anne is the adjunct distinguished professor at the University of Notre Dame. Uh, she's also the Motorola Professor Emerita of International Management at Arizona State University. And concurrently, uh, she's also the visiting distinguished professor at Peking University and Fudan University of China. Uh, previously, Anne was at uh, Duke University, uh, UC Irvine, and also in the mid-90s, she was a professor at Hong Kong University of Science and Technology and received her PhD in management from UCLA. And she also received the honorary doctorate in the economics from University of St. Gallen, Switzerland. She made huge contribution to our community and was the 67th president and also the fellow of Academy of Management. And she also the, she's also the editor of the Academy of Management Journal, MJ, our flagship journal. She's also the fellow of the AIB, Academy of International Business. Uh, in addition to that, uh, she's the founding president of IACMR. International Association for Chinese Management Research, and she's also the founding editor-in-chief of Man uh, Management Organization Review. Uh, in recent years, and start a mega project. This is the Global Initiative on Responsible Research in, in Business and Management. So later, if we have time, we will get back to uh, a couple of questions related to this RRBM. And I'm going to highlight some of the awards and recognitions. Uh, it's, a it's going to be a long list, so I'm just going to select some of them. So Anne's research uh, has received the best paper awards from AMJ, SQ, and Journal of Management. And also from the Center for Creative Leadership and Applied Leadership Research Award. She also received the University of Minnesota Outstanding Alumnus Achievements Awards and due to his humongous contribution to the AOM, she also received the AOM Distinguished Services Contribution Award and also the IACMR Lifetime Contribution Awards. So in terms of the research impact, you can see that her paper and articles has received more than 35,000 Google citations. Clearly, clearly shows he's extremely influential on for his societies and, and her research. 
Um, and her research topic is pretty wide. And recently, she worked on the topics like executive leaderships and income inequality in the organizations. And in those earlier days, she worked on demographic diversity employment relationship. She also worked on managerial and human resource unit effectiveness. And she also worked on this cross-national, uh, cross-culture topics like Guanxi Network. And she also, she's also an expert in the Chinese management research. So um, I'm going to um, uh, have this like very quick introductions and then so allow that we have around about like 100 minutes or 90 minutes to have a conversation with Anne. Uh, first, thanks Anne, thank you so much for being with us and spend your time and share the insights with us. Uh, before I do that, uh, let me close the... Wally? Let me close, yes. Can I just ask, we Please. actually didn't see the slide with the bullet points. You said them all very eloquently though, but maybe you could show us that slide since this is being recorded and others could view what you just said. If you go okay. forward. It's... If it allows you to. This is the slides, am I right? We only see the first slide with a very nice picture of Anne, but not the bullet points that you had mentioned. Uh, interesting, because from my screen, it looks like I'm in the second slide. You can, you can only see the first slides? Yes, uh, maybe stop sharing screen and go to that slide and then share screen. We may let be me, Okay, let me. Let me do it again, sorry. Um, no problem. I just want to make sure people can read all the wonderful things that we highlighted about Anne. Yes. Can you see the slides now? Yes. Okay, let me... So maybe we can leave this up for five minutes and then we can, and then um, Shelby can stop sharing the screen so you don't need to worry about it. Is the slides okay? Nope. Okay, great. Uh, you know, this is sometimes the issues that we face when we teach online and then students will say, hey, where's the slides? And <laughs> okay, good. So uh, this is just one slice and then I, I try very best to put it in just into one slice because there's so many things that we can talk about and, and she, she made a huge contribution to our fields and do lots of services, not only uh, in the you know traditional community of uh, its longest history, like the AOM, she's also the founding members of the ISMR and do lots of the global initiatives. So uh, here is the major bullet points. Um, so should I maybe stop sharing and then get into the session? Okay. So we will talk about um, who you are and, and also your scholarship and your contribution to our field and also the evolution of your research and career trajectory and also your insights uh, to show us 
So this is a great opportunity for us. It's not only about read your paper, but also we want to know a little bit more about you. So very, I very, very appreciate these opportunities to know you in person. So let me stop the slide sharing and... Um, okay. Um, so before we start the conversations, let me set a couple of rules for this uh, Zoom meeting. So in the first about 15 to 60 minutes, and I, uh, I will interview Anne, and then we have this conversation. So uh, if um, you can unmute yourself, uh, you can mute yourself in the first like 15 minutes, that will be great. And then, after that, we are going to open to the all for these like Q and sessions. And but if you have questions, you can always put your question on the chat box so that we can uh, keep tracking what kind of questions you have since when we uh, get uh, when we get into the second part of the the sessions. Okay. So, and uh, thank you so much again. Uh, really appreciate your time. Uh, can we? Um, can we have this conversation now? Uh, yeah, so Anne, could yes. you say something so that uh, yes, we sure that yes, we can see? Yes, yes, okay, I'm ready, okay, great, great. I'm ready. <laughs> great, so um, thank you so much. So I'm going to start with uh, the first question, which is related to your past. So we really hope to know about more about you, your, your past, and then where did you grow up, and where are you now? And uh, what kind of the, you know, lifetime events really trigger you, uh, have a big influence in you and choose this academic path? Wow, there's a lot of questions in there. <laughs> okay, yeah. well, before we begin, I want to, um, first of all, thank the strategy division for the invitation. This is very special for me. As you know, I am uh, not really in strategy. I'm an OBHR researcher and my contribution to the strategy field is really very, very peripheral, and hopefully my latest work will have some, some contribution. But I'm an outsider. Because of that, I feel extra special to be invited, so I want to thank all of you, especially Samina, for all your great work. Your team told me that you're the brain power behind the whole program, so I really want to thank you, and thank you, Guoli, for getting up so early, uh, six o'clock in Singapore, and, and also Xiaobi and Zhao for your help with this session. So I think this, this project is so special. I sat in on a few already, and, and I think um, that it's, it's wonderful to be able to hear uh, very distinguished, successful, successful scholars on how, how they approached their career, how they started, and, 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 and on and on. Uh, it's ins inspiring for me. I'm sure it's inspiring for young people. And I wish I had this, something like this when I was a doctoral student, and that was many, many years ago. So time has changed. So we have this technology that makes it possible for us to do a lot more sharing than we could otherwise. So sorry for this long-winded uh, preamble into answering your long questions. I'll try to maybe break up into little pieces so that we can have a little kind of a digest uh, uh, in between. So, so I guess you want to know way, uh, how I get started. Uh, uh, it's been a long time ago, so I'll try to recall. Uh, I was um, born in a small village in Shanghai. Uh, it's a small farming village, and it's now part of the metropolitan city of Shanghai because it's grown so much in the last 40 years uh, due to the economic reform. But I was uh, born there, 
and my mother and my father met when she was 16. And they both were not high school graduates. My mother had a junior high education. My father is a high school dropout. But they met at age 16 and fell in love, got married at age 17, and at age 18, I was born. So that was pretty quick. And then uh, three years after they were married, uh, communism, the, the regime change happened and communism took over. So uh, my father had to leave Shanghai left behind mother and me. So my mother and I, we moved from the city of Shanghai where she grew up, she's a city girl, and we moved to uh, the farming village with my father's mother, my paternal grandmother. And my mother instantly became a farmer. So she had to get up really early in the morning to, um, to uh, fertilize and, and water and then and harvest the vegetables and then go to the market to sell them before it's done. And, um, and uh, my job, I had a job. My job was to help her with uh, picking out the worms from the cabbages using a pair of chopsticks. I was about five or six years old at that time. So um, that particular experience, while I hated very much these worms, but I learned, you know, working is normal and getting up early to work, that's just part of life. And I learned hard work from my mother. So it was very, very influential for me to, to, to realize later on where I got this workaholism is <laughs> from my mother, <laughs> all right? So, so, but I want to go on a little bit more because of how I left China and then eventually come to the U.S. China had closed its borders, so nobody, except in very special circumstances, nobody could leave China. But we had a, a police officer in our village they, he took pity on me and mother because just the two of us, he knew my father was away already. So he was managed to get a permit for us to leave Shanghai. Leave Shanghai. So we took the train, went down to Guangzhou, and went down to Macau. And, and in Macau, my mother, uh, we met a, a lady from Hong Kong. She came to bring me into Hong Kong on an overnight boat ride uh, as if I was her daughter. And my mother went on a fishing boat uh, separately. So the next morning, she brought me to my maternal grandmother's uh, place in Hong Kong. And then three days later, my mother arrived. Uh, we really didn't know whether she would make it or not, but she did. So, so that experience um, really was very important for me because I, I, it taught me not to be afraid of new things, strangers, and also taught me that there are lots of good people like that lady. I mean, I was just felt really indebted to her uh, for doing that. So tell me about good people, good outcomes could happen. And so it instilled a sense of optimism in me, which is really a very big part of me today, okay? So um, another thing growing up important uh, for me is that I uh, was, uh, we were very poor in, in China, of course, and, and also in Hong Kong. So my mother would do handwork, you know, handcraft in Hong Kong, she was farming in Shanghai, and I, was always her assistant. So I helped her with head, head handcraft while we were in Hong Kong. So, so, so that experience taught me that work is a very natural part of life. So I felt like I was just born to work. <laughs> and, and, and also my mother uh, turned out to be, she was a very diligent, uh, very quiet, just accepting the life as, as was given to her. And I also learned survival skills, adaptation skills. And I was the only child, so I learned to be independent. And all of these adjectives describe me 
today, and it really influenced how how I how I uh, you know live my life. So my long long answer to your to your question of how I grew up uh, is that I grew up both in Hong Kong and Shanghai with very with uneducated parents and um, and in poverty, but I didn't know that we were poor. Uh, and that is important because I didn't know they were poor because everybody around me was poor. I just thought everybody's like that. So that poverty did not handicap me. And I also, I think one important thing it did for me is that I'm really easily satisfied. I really need a lot of money to keep me happy. So, so that, that, that's, uh, that's how, uh, how, how, how I grew up uh, to be independent and, uh, and uh, work is just normal part of life. Okay. So uh, you want me to go on? Thanks. Thank, thank you so much. And I really, really appreciate share with your uh, early childhood experience with us. I think first is that family education is always the first education and then yes. the place and then the life that we had experience in those early right. days actually have a mm -hmm. big impact of our trajectory in the future. I right. really, really appreciate your, yes. your, your very honest sharing with all your experience with us. Thank you so much. Um, um, so uh, maybe next we'll be uh, go back. To, uh, let, let's get back to maybe the more academic side a little bit. And then so uh, once you get into the U.S. and then like uh, broadly, how did you find this like uh, PhD program and then start your PhD journey? Uh -huh. Okay. So so I got my bachelor's in at Duluth, Minnesota, and then I um, got my master's in uh, Minneapolis. After I finished my master's degree, I was working in this company called Control Data Corporation. I was really pretty happy. Um, and, and the control data had a very strong human resource department. There were lots of PhDs working there. there most of them were IO psychologists from, from UM, UM, Minnesota. So as I was working, you know, interacting with them, I, I was humbled and I was inspired. I felt like maybe I should get my PhD too, then I can be as smart as they and also be provide better service to, uh, to, uh, to the managers I was working with. So I decided, so yeah, I go again. I, started, I asked my manager whether I could take a leave uh, to go to uh, get my PhD and I will come back to work. So, so they said, yeah, sure, we'll, we'll keep you on the payroll. You can come back with part-time and then when you're done, you can come back. So, but, so I went to UCLA and UCLA after first year, I felt, felt deeply, deeply in love. Not with anybody, but with research. I've loved research so much that after I finished my PhD in third year, I said, I really want to do this full time. I just don't think I want to go back to control data. So I talked to my manager at control data, Joe McGregor, and he said, Joe, I, I I think I'd like to try to be in a university professor. What do you think? He said, well, that's what you want to do, do it. So, so he said, and if you don't find it, you know, satisfying, whatever, you can always come back. So with that encouragement, then I, um, I, uh, I decided to find an academic job. But there's another second reason for that, that I, I became an academic uh, and, and uh, get on to my PhD. And that is I, um, uh, I was thinking to myself, I said, you know, when, um, if I go back to work for a company, I'll be helping the people in one company, about 40, 50,000 people. But if I'm a professor and a researcher, I can potentially help so many more people. Uh, 
and I can have so much more impact than I would if I work for one company. So that's how I decided that I would do that. And my friends actually were trying to persuade me not to do that. I said, well, you'll be poor. You professors make very little money compared to business. <laughs> so, as you know, I didn't even think about that. I didn't matter how much money I make. I'm sure they pay enough for me to buy groceries. <laughs> so that's not an issue at all. So that's how I ended up becoming a professor with my PhD. Now I am a professor my whole life. I never, never regretted my decision. So. Very, very interesting uh, experience. So I, I, I don't know what it's, this is like a norm uh, back to like early 80s or end of the 90s, 70s. Because nowadays uh, our norm is like the, when you, after you get a PhD degree and then you're supposed to be a, mm -hmm. a professor in a university, right? right? right, I, right. It looks like, and, and I write that back to late 1970s mm -hmm. or early 1980s, such a, such a norm, like PhD degree getting the, right. the university professor may not be so strong at that point in time. It's, so it's, it's so it's uh, how, how often, like for instance, like back to early 1980s, uh, well, how often mean, that the PhD graduates actually get into the industry, right? it's, in the industry. It's, it's more often than now. Um, mm -hmm. Especially uh, the cohort that I was benchmarking myself to, uh, they were from psychology. As you know, psychology, especially IO psychology, many of them go to work in industry. So that's pretty typical. And when I was a student at UCLA, um, we had a very small program and most of them, uh, uh, most of them did go into academia. Yeah. But, but I have to say, uh, the desire to work in business was not a bad thing in those days. So that you were not punished for, for doing that. So. Yeah. Yeah. Especially from the money's perspective. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Great. Thanks. So the next questions will be, uh, related to your dissertation topic. Uh, so, uh, how, how did you get this idea or the research questions that, uh, you, you think that you are going to invest at least, you know, two, three years for your dissertation, right. Right. Uh, Mm -hmm. So yeah. how, how did you get these ideas? How did you get the research questions for your dissertation? Right, right. Well, as, as I mentioned, I was working in control data before I went to get my PhD. So um, that my work experience clearly influenced uh, what, I, what I thought about as potentially enough uh, topics to, uh, to research on. So uh, when I was working in control data, because I worked with so many managers, um, I, I was actually very impressed by, by the manager's job. I thought managers are so important people. And to me, they're more important than technicians, anybody else in a second, because they manage people. You, each manager, and I was doing calculations, each manager managed 10 people, 100 managers manage 1,000 people. And these 1,000 employees, in this, their livelihood, their well-being, their performance is under the influence of these 100 managers. So, so I also noticed there are some managers that have a strong positive reputation for, for, for being a good manager, others are not so much. Then furthermore, I, I, I noticed the middle managers in particularly had a really difficult job 
because they, uh, they had to please the boss, they manage their people, they have to work with peers. So all of that was in my head as I entered the PhD program. And by the, by the time I need to choose a topic, I already knew I want to study managers. I mean, that's no question. So no matter what I read, nothing kind of perked my interest. I wanted to study managers, especially the middle managers. So, so, so the, the question is, how do I study it? And then I, I was really lucky. I, I, um, I met a professor of economics. Uh, his name is Bill Ochi, actually. Um, and I was explaining what I wanted to study. And I said, would you be my chair? And he said, and you and I economists, if you want me to be your chair, you have to take three years of economics. <laughs> and I said, Professor Ochi, I'm not sure I want to do that. <laughs> he said, well, in that case, you go read this book. So he told me to read this book called Social Psychology of Organizations by Carson Kahn. So I read it cover to cover, and then I discovered this Rosa theory. Now the Rosa theory really is like light bulb just lit up. Of course, it's obvious managers is a role, and in the role set, there are role centers around them. Each role center are in their own jobs. They have, have their own expectations, demands. It gets a pretty complicated sending, receiving a role. So I use that role set theory, try to estimate, come up with a model on how managers can be effective with all three groups. And that becomes my dissertation topic. And it's called a role set analysis of managerial reputational effectiveness. So that's how I come to the end. So it's, 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 a, it's a phenomenon in a company that I was intrigued. And, and, and I just, you know, wanted to understand that problem. So I did it. So can I say broadly speaking that your research question is driven from the literally the business problems or business uh, questions, uh, right? Uh, from uh, the uh, phenomenon. Absolutely. I am a phenomenon driven researcher and I am uh, what we call contextually sensitive. Okay. So in other words, I pay attention to what's going on in the world outside my ivory tower. <laughs> so I, I, I look around, see what other problems that interest me or important. If I'm interested, I go after them. I never go to the literature to look for questions because I don't want to, like couldn't say, mop up somebody else's problem. They don't want to, you know, I like to find my own problems, find my own solutions. And so I, I always do that. And I never worry about whether or not that topic is publishable, right? Because academic freedom. We're supposed to be free to choose problems as important, interesting to us. And so I, and that's what I do. So, so, so with that, my, my, my second project actually after dissertation is that because I work in the human resource department and I know human resource department is also one of those departments have a tough time getting to be known to be, you know, a, a, a sort of a, with high reputation and prestige. So I want to study how, how can they gain uh, a, a positive reputation in the company. So that become my second dissertation topic. And I can go on, you want me to go on, I can tell you my third topic. So, should I? Sure, sure, please, yeah. Uh, so do you have the three essays for your dissertation? No, no, uh, I, have one, oh, okay. I have one, one dissertation, uh -huh. it's a really good data set. So, so that dissertation was done in control data. So I have a really yes. good data set and I, public, and I write several papers from it. So I'm one of those, one big data set, write multiple papers, but each paper is different. So I see, so that. I see, yeah. it's great, so, thanks. So, so yeah, no, no, I, I, if I may, I want to tell you about my relational demography research, which is also phenomenon driven because in that year, in the 80s, there was a lot of attention in business to affirmative action, diversity training, it's really hot. 
And also in the literature, in the field, there are people writing, people like Don Hambrick, uh, Jeff Pfeffer, Susan Jackson, they were writing about demography in organizations. So there seems to be this academic research attention, there's something going on in the world. And it just dawned on me that I, my dissertation data set has data on demographics between supervisors and subordinates. So I could actually investigate how employees feel or react to situations as more or less diversity. So I, so mm -hmm. I work with, I, I happened, that happened to be at Berkeley and, and I, so I talked to Charles O'Reilly who's there. So we worked on this project and very luckily we got the, this paper published in AMJ. And then uh, I also realized that my, uh, uh, I have a second project on human resource effectiveness. And that particular project also has a very big data set as well. And it's a unit level. So I said, hmm, we can study this relational demography idea that we wrote in the AMJ paper at the unit level as well. So that's uh, so we did, and that paper got published in the ASQ. 92, five years later, that paper got the ASQ award. So, so that was a very lucky, two really good papers came from data I already have, but it's on a phenomenon that's important in society at that time. And also in, in, the, in the field, we are paying attention to that question. So that's just. Yeah, so, so that is one of the most cited paper, right? Um, uh, yeah. The traditional demography. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so uh, if I ask you like, uh, you know, which projects or, or, or which papers that you feel most proud of, and then if you want to cite yourself, and then which paper would you consider as the one that, you know, especially for the junior scholars that we, we should read? Oh, that you should read. Yeah, some of the paper you shouldn't read. <laughs> uh, so I have my share of papers that I wish I didn't spend as much time on, but I try not to do that. I really try not to do that. Um, so it be, besides the relation to demography paper, I think the paper in AMJ 1997 on employee organization relationship, that's the one I feel very, very good about as well. And that's also a phenomenon based research. And that paper came about uh, when I was at UC Irvine with Lyman Porter and John Pierce. Uh, it was in early, you know, I, I got there in, in 1988. And then we would meet regularly to talk about what's going on in the world, what's going on with the field. And, and we, 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 we were discussing all these major corporate restructuring happened in the late 1980s. I mean, you're too young to, to, to know that. But in the late 1980s, there's major corporate restructuring, IBM, General Electric, Hewlett Packard, all these great companies are laying off middle managers by the thousands. But at the same time, they also say with hard times, you know, we need you to actual commitment to the company. So we were just intrigued, how can companies laying off people at the one hand and say, well, you know, work harder, be, you know, so, so that's kind of one way, expecting commitment, but not giving commitments to employees in return. So we wanted to study that phenomena. And we applied for an NSF grant and we got an NSF grant. And, um, and then we uh, have 10 companies, a really good data set as well. So the paper uh, was sent to AMJ and the, um, you know, this kind of little review story <laughs> it's, 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 sometimes get lucky, sometimes you have to persist. Um, mm -hmm. Three reviewers, one reviewer hated it through two revisions from beginning to end, won't change. The other two reviewers come around. And the editor was uh, Angelo Denisi, and she de he decided to take a chance with our paper, so he accepted it. 
And that paper was published in 1997, and as you know, it won the 1998 Best Paper in AMJ Award. So up to today, I don't know who's the reviewer that rejected the paper. I would have loved to find out, but I guess that person probably forgot. Yeah, yeah. so which, so which that, means so that, that's, you know, paper, we, we need to be very persistent. Yeah, right. yeah, we need yeah. to be very, very persistent exactly. in for our, mm -hmm. our profession, right? And, and we also need good uh, editors who are willing good to, editor. take risks, yeah, yeah. to take risks. Supportive. Yeah, yeah. some yeah. editors are not risking, risking. they want to have all, everybody to sign on before they accept the paper, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Take the judgment call and right. um, exactly. mm -hmm. be open-minded. Mm -hmm. uh, so go, go back to the, uh, you know, the key, key points that you mentioned about this like uh, phenomenon driven and then so it's going to lead you to find a new projects and new ideas and um, I have two related questions and one it's uh, especially for some of our junior colleagues, right? So on the one hand, we say, okay, this is, we talk about phenomena where the business school, right. um, mm -hmm. we can get the idea. On the other hand, it's about the literature review. And then so right. my first question is like, to what, how, how do you think about the function or value of the literature review in the research process? Like when you write paper, when you come up with the idea, this is the first question. The second is, if the phenomenon is one of the major drivers for you to find out the ideas and then how does that the phenomenon actually drive or, or influence your career trajectory? Okay, okay. Uh, first question, uh, the, uh, the importance of the role of literature review. The literature basically is our body of knowledge, what we know about organizations and management today. It tells you what we have learned in the past, okay? So you go to literature to learn what kind of questions have we studied, what theories there are to answer those uh, puzzles, and what are possible gaps in knowledge, right? So that sort of literature is important for us to prepare us to add to the literature. The second piece of literature review is when you have a problem you want to study, okay? The other day, Don Hambrick said, he looked at the problem, he defined his question, he literally does not look at the literature. I'm the same way, okay? I like this question, I like this problem. I try to figure it out, you know, is it interesting, is it important? I mean, I have a theory, but I wanted to know the answers to that, okay? And I'm convinced this is an important problem. Then I go to the literature to find out what we didn't know about that already. Okay. If there's already answer, I'm happy with the answer that's given, no need to do research, go on to a second topic, right? So, so in other words, literature review is not, for, for now, I'm afraid many students are taught to go to the literature to look for problems to work on. And I really have a very strong feeling, especially now after the, at the pandemic, with all the changes happening in the last 20 years, I think the literature is very outdated in terms of problems and theories. I know I'm already saying very strong things. We have some newer literature. I'm not saying by the last 10 years. So I'm saying anything older than 10 years, 20 years ago is very old. But we're still using some of these old theories. And I'm not sure that they apply to the problems of today. So I think the phenomenon base, because there's so many problems in the world that we need to study, new problems, right? So therefore, we kind of 
start from the world and then say, all right, let's look at the literature, see what we know. And I bet you, you're not gonna find many answers to, for the problems of today, because all these problems today are very new in nature. So that's the first question. So being phenomenon driven, how does have evolved my, my research trajectory? That's the question, right? Yeah, yeah. So I already gave you some examples to my dissertation, to my child unit work, and then to my uh, relational demography, and up to the employee organization relationship. So all of those are phenomenon based. None of those ideas came from the literature, right? So now the, the next two stages actually, the context will make even more influence on, on how my career evolved actually. So the next stage actually is around mid 1995, I, um, I, I was asked to go to Hong Kong to build a management department at a uni new university there. Uh, you mentioned HKUST. So, so I, I, I went and, and being in Hong Kong, I instantly become sensitive to what we are teaching, what we do research on, what's happening in China. So my research began to look at Chinese phenomena. So I started to work on Chinese guanxi, social networks in China, Chinese guanxi, and I started looking at executives in China. And the reason I look at executives in China is because the Chinese economic reform, the main driver uh, uh, was the private enterprises. So there were just so much private, they, they, were, they were like contributing 60, 70, 80% of GDP growth. And there were just so many thousands and thousands of new enterprises. They are SMEs, right? So everyone has an SEO. And so I'm intrigued. I say, who are these people? What are they like? How do they behave? How do they lead? How do they manage that account for the success of the private sector in China? So I started you know, looking at the CEOs. And, and, and at the same time, I also continue the work on re employee relationships because that also happened to apply pretty well to the Chinese firms as well. So I have students working on dissertation topics on EOR, working on executive leadership, personality and so forth. And, and so, so my research in the years after Hong Kong, from Hong Kong on, it's mostly you know, Chinese context research. But that's my research. Now I'm going to go to my institutional building work. That's very much context, um, context uh, inspired. So when I was in Hong Kong, I, um, um, I noticed that in mainland China, business schools is, uh, you know, became very, very, very important. And, and they were all using American textbooks. They were learning the American, the case, how the case method, right? And they, 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 they were not doing research the way we do. So, we, so I decided with my colleagues, we created workshops for Chinese business school professors to come to Hong Kong, eight days of thought training on research methods, empirical research methods. So we did that for a whole four years, okay? So after that, we have a kind of 150, 160 young professors, they were recommended by the dean, so they were very bright and influential. So they went back, they started their own empirical research, they started a PhD program, introduced empirical research as part of the PhD program. So when that happened, and then at the same time, a lot of Western scholars are studying China. In fact, the earliest best work about China were by sociologists. Okay, people like Victor Nee and Andy Walder, Guthrie, uh, Guthrie, they were writing a lot of research on China. So I know there's Western interest on China, Chinese scholars are interested in doing research on the international stage. So we, 
decided to create this platform called International Association for Chinese Management Research to create a platform for exchange of research ideas, results, and also form a potential collaboration. So my career then began to, a small part of research, a big part began to work on this institution building work. And we also created a journal to publish Chinese management research in the China the Management Organization Review. So while that is happening, I was observing something else is happening globally in our field. Chinese scholars were working on projects that are mostly they look at the literature for questions, right? So they were studying problems that's in the literature, theories that's in the literature, methods that's in the literature. So pretty soon, Chinese data, Western theory, Western questions, and Western methods. So, 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 so that this kind of tendency moving towards the North American paradigm was happening with Chinese research. And then, this is happening not only in China, we know this is happening in other emerging economies as well, Eastern Europe, Africa, India, you know, name. So this, and, and even Europeans, or so Western Europeans are moving towards North American model, right? We know the Tilburg is known for published successfully in American journals, right? So James March was the first one to observe this homogenization tendency moving towards the North American model. And I observed it worldwide. So I began to write about this problem. So my research then turned to be research on research. So I began to write these questions of, of um, homogenization tendency, um, the need for indigenous research, high quality indigenous research. We need to contextualize our theories, our methods, our constructs. So I was doing a lot of writing in those areas. And, um, and then I, um, I, I, I was asked to write a paper for AMJ's 50th anniversary. So I decided to write about this problem. And the, and the title of the paper was From Homogenization to Pluralism in International Management Research in the Academy and Beyond. So that's Basically, it's actually my sixth program of research, but it's research on research. It's all kind of philosophy, science type of question. So I write about, you know, we need to do social responsible research. We need to pay attention to other stakeholders and more than shareholders. And then we write about that we need to pay attention to both rigor and relevance and the homogenization problem. So that, that's uh, basically my newest work, the research writing piece, and of course my institution work is in creating a new platform for, for global attention to responsible research. We can talk about that later. So that's how the context really influences. I really respond to what I see to be in the world, the need are, and I, it, it, it usually affects me. I feel an injustice. I feel something's not right. And then I want to write about it, talk about it, and then do something about it. So that's my academic career in the last 15, 20 years is all about action research. Mm -hmm. It's uh, a, a very interesting uh, experience, which I think make you very different compared to some of our other scholars. Yeah. You are really kind of the academic entrepreneur and then uh, back to even think about like back to early or mid 1990s, you, you moved from the US and back to Hong Kong and then from Hong Kong, have uh, even bigger influence in this like mainland China and 
do this institutional building stuff and encourage uh, uh, local scholars to do some indigenous research and not not just about the literature itself and try to address the important business questions in their community. Right. Right. Um, so, um, in in terms of um, think when you think about uh, the the last several decades, right? You do the post research institution. Mm -hmm. So, uh, is is there any like uh, like m maybe one of the most challenging moments, or 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 some of the very successful story that you would like to share with us, or, or especially you want to share with some of the junior scholars? Um, in addition to this, like you know, how to deal with like. The, the reviewers and uh, is there any other challenge um no well i mean there the review process is always challenging um and i and i like to i i think i was joined oxley's mentioned the other day not that reviewers are always right but if the reviewers have a problem with um with your idea with the way you present it it's probably you didn't present it well so you always have to uh, have to uh, to uh, to uh, not externalize, uh, you know, uh, external attribution and look at how I can change the way I present this idea so that it could be understood by the reviewers. Okay, so so that would be the on the reviewer side. Um, I, I I guess I'm a really lucky person. I, I you know at every stage of my life, I never really. Um, really see difficulties. I think that's probably the way I grew up. <laughs> just say difficulties just part of life. When problems come, you solve it, you know? And and um, and, and, uh, it, and then you can also have a collaboration with co-authors. One co-author was sitting on a revision for six months. I sent calls and facts and email, everything, just nothing would get the person's attention. And then I even consider, should I just drop the person and just move on without the person? I say, but no, I can't. I mean, that's just not right to do. So I just patiently waited, continuing at least one way of contact a week for about six months. Finally, the person said, okay, and I know I've been lowering, but I'm ready now. So that turned. So patience, understanding, because sometimes you might encounter in your life situations where it's out of your control, right? So nobody would say, well, I'm sorry, I'm been having difficulty, I'll get back to you in two months, three months. But this person decided to ignore me. So, so that, that's kind of one of the difficulty that I, I, I was frustrating for me, but I somehow managed to overcome that. So I guess my, my suggestion to junior scholars is that, is that when there's overcome, uh, there's difficulty, um, just think about, is it something that you can do about it, if you really can seek advice, if you, if, if, and that's always helpful once you seek advice, people uh, give you some objective uh, advice and, and advise somebody who's really critical and somebody who's not just nice, right? People who are nice are not gonna tell you uh, that you really should drop that project. You know, people who are really critical, uh, they, they have no self-interest in your problem and that's the best. So, so yeah, so I, I'm not sure I can be very helpful in this regard, so. It's it's very helpful. I think it's like um, maybe go back to the earlier points you make that your early life experience actually helps a lot. As for you, literary is less 
uh, all the difficulties could be solved as long as work well, work with the cause, uh, understand the difficulties, and eventually uh, all the difficulties could be, could be solved. Well, well, yeah. well, not, well not, not that extreme. <laughs> mm -hmm. so, so, I mean, like, I have two projects. Um, both of them are field experiments. One is a, a simulation experiment, one is a company experiment. So, you know, I'm a self, higher self-efficacy. I believe I can do everything, anything, which is also one of my challenges. But, um, but so I did that. I spent one year on one project, one year on the other project. And when that paper sends out, you know, people say, this is, I mean, manipulation is not right. I mean, they just don't trust the results. So, so I, I, I don't think at that time I even seek any advice. I look at it and I look at, double check my research methods book and I say, you know, they're right. So I just throw it away and just move on. So sometimes you have to defeat, admit defeat and just move on. And, and feel bad about it for about half an hour and then just move on. Don't think about it anymore, do new things. And that ability to kind of, to pick up and just restart is very important for our field because not all projects are successful. We all, we, I, I really believe every one of us have projects that failed. And we just have to not lament about it and just move on. Mm -hmm. That's great. Thanks. So uh, before we uh, open the conversations of all the Q&As from our audience, and uh, let me ask you maybe one of the last questions is, um, um, is there any like unanswered questions from your perspective uh, that uh, you think it's important and uh, scholars should further pursue it uh, or some like you know related advice for our junior colleagues before we open okay. the floor to, to everybody. Okay that, that's, a, that's a very good question because uh, I get asked a lot. Professor Sui what should I study? <laughs> <laughs> Every young scholar in China asked me this question um, and um, so I, all my answer is always, uh, think about the world today. What do you care about? Okay. And someone said, well, I don't know. There are too many things. I said, well, there must be one thing that you care about. Okay. All right. So if, if they really couldn't think of anything, now I have another answer. I said, well, um, go to some of the websites and look for a list of grand challenges. Okay. The Academy of Engineering has this grand challenge the Academy of Public Administration, the National Academy Management. We don't have a list of grand challenges, but we have AMJ grand challenge special issue that's quota papers uh, also. So I would say we really can't think of anything else and go to the United Nations website and look at the 17 sustainable development goals. I mean, there's something for everybody. I mean, if you can find a problem that you care about on that list, I have to ask you. Why you? What world do you live in, right? So, 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 yeah. So that's a really good place to start, and um, and then you would um, think about, well, these are too big. Well, yeah. Well, they're not too big. You can always divide it up into small pieces, right? So, so if everything fails, I'll say, well, think about this year's economic Nobel Prize winner. Okay. I'm not asking you to aspire to be Nobel Prize winners. If you do, that's wonderful. <laughs> but, but at least you can look at them and think about 
they did actually very mundane research. They care about this problem of poverty in developing economies. So the three of them spent 20 years to focus on alleviating poverty, emerging economies, India, Africa, South America, you name it, okay? They spent 20 years to work on public health, early education, agriculture, and all they did were field experiments, okay? Randomized control experiments, okay? If you look at what they did, we can do all of that. We know those, those, those methods, right? Why don't we do that? Right? So you don't have to say, I'm gonna spend 20 years to work on my dissertation. I would say, I'll start with one. Poverty alleviation in Mississippi. Water problem in Detroit. Racial injustice in Alabama, right? Pick a problem you care about, go and understand it. Understanding the problem is very important before you can find the right solution for it, okay? And I'm afraid the literature, it really is not helpful for these, okay? So you gotta think about, all right, there are other disciplines and many problems are multidisciplinary in nature. So talk to people in humanities, in political science, economics, even in philosophy, okay, in sociology, to see what they, what they say, have to say about this problem, right? And then you pick and choose one idea that can potentially reduce poverty, improve education, whatever, okay? Do few experiments. That's what we need to do more in our field, okay? In companies and in cities. Okay, help business to help solve the poverty problem in, in any city. So that's just so much to do now that the world is in such a mess. Okay, we really have, you know, and, and science is really the solution to many problems. And we have to think about, I mean, I'm an academic freedom person. I really value the academic freedom, choosing what we want to study, but freedom comes responsibility as well. So we have a responsibility to give back something to somebody with the salary that we are paid and the time we have to do research. It's got to be more than just for me having another paper in my CV. I mean, that just doesn't seem like we can afford to do that much longer because we, we, we have to self-motivate ourselves to do things that matter for society. So that's my- Thank you. Thank you, and thank you for uh, challenging us and ask the big questions and be relevant and to, to contribute not only the academic person, but also the, the society. I care a lot about we make a difference in our world. And I know young people really want to make a difference. Now, we just, this morning I saw an email from the Impact Scholar community and you know, the humanistic management community. All of them are, uh, young people are crying out. We want to do research that matters. that can make impact on society. And we just need to, to you know, so people like me in my generation, we just have to help create a structure to make some changes in the structure to, to let that potential be realized, to release and take away the straitjacket of this journalist, all that thing, just not productive. So, but there's lots of hope. Things are changing. 
Thanks. Thank you. So um, before we open the floor to everybody, and can we take a screenshot? Can I make the following request? For those who haven't opened your web camera, uh, could you open it so that uh, we can see your face? And uh, no matter where you are, and then, but at this moment, we are in this small Zoom room. Uh, please open your switch on your web camera and let's take a. Let's see, like, let's take a couple more seconds and then please open your web camera and then uh, shall we are going to help us to I can do count. The okay, yeah, please. I'll count to three and that way we know when everybody should be looking at the at the camera. All right, so one, two, three, chee. Okay, super. Thank you. Um, so let's get into the second part and uh, I've seen a few questions already put in our chat box. So if you don't mind, perhaps I will ask you to raise your questions and uh, shall we start with uh, Shelby? Uh, do you have a question, am I right? Could you ask a question yeah. by yourself or should I? Oh, okay, please. Yeah, so thank you, Anne, for uh, an amazing talk so far. It's, it's been very inspiring, uh, and I'm, I'm really grateful for you taking the time out to chat with us. So I have two sort of related questions. Uh, the first one was, you know, uh, to your point about taking inspiration from current events um, and, being, and, and looking at what's happening out there in society and, and trying to address those issues, I'm curious if you have any thoughts about the current in the U.S. and how it's affecting Asians and Asian Americans working here. Um, and the second sort of related question to that is, as a senior female scholar of Asian descent who accomplished so much institutional building and attained such prominent leadership positions uh, during a time when, you know, it's, it wasn't easy, I'm sure. Uh, what challenges, if any, did you encounter? What advice would you give to junior scholars uh, from, like, you know, different backgrounds who tell a similar career path? Okay, Shelby, thank you for the questions. I, I, I understand your second question with no problem, but I have difficulty with the first question. So if you would mind repeating your first question again for me, I appreciate oh. it. Yeah, it's not a problem. Uh, coming here from a from a farm, so apologies for the for the technology. So um, the question was about the current climate in the U.S. I mean, climate. I, yeah. So the and it's specifically the idea that um, you mean the you research know, we, climate, or of, you mean the research climate, or, or our more of a political uh, climate. So like political climate. So mm -hmm. given the um, rise of a lot of. Uh, racist acts against Asians okay. and Asian Americans right. in the West, you know, uh, given your work, um, looking, looking at this, um, what kind of thoughts do you have? Do you think that this is something that is, we as business scholars, management scholars um, can put their in, you know, any, anything related to that? Yeah, yeah, that's, a, that's an excellent question. Um, the, um, uh, the, the public health uh, pandemic really reminds me the importance of leadership, right? I mean, it's just the way the leadership is at a national level is just incredible. I mean, not only one person, but lots of people. And I think about business as well. Some business was very nice to their employees. Some business just laid off, right? 
So, so for me, uh, uh, you know, as a management scholar, uh, what attracted to me is this, I call it responsible leadership, that you, you without responsible leadership, um, there's no value. A different kind of value is driving the decisions. Okay, so I, I you know, I, I, I'm, for me personally, uh, luckily, actually, I am interested in responsible leadership question for some time now, right? So we have a special issue in MIMOR. So it becomes just so real. Oh my gosh, we have this issue which came about in December before pandemic, and now becomes even more important. So. So, so that's one thing. And then the second thing I said is the racial uh, ethnic uh, tension. Personally, um, um, that's very personal. You, each person reacts to it individually. But as a scholar, uh, it really tells me that we have to do research on racial injustice in the firm, in society. I mean, that's the topic. We know how to do research on that working with our colleagues in psychology, sociology, even in political science and philosophy and, and business ethics, okay? So again, it, it reminds me that if I'm your age <laughs> and, and my, my, my junior class, I mean, if I have papers I'm working on today that's on problems has nothing to do with the society today, I really have the question, do I want to continue work on it? Or should I pick up a problem that I really should get? And I would not worry about what is publishable or not, what is going to help my tenure or not, because if you can solve, offer some solution to a real problem, the journals will publish it and you'll be valued. So in other words, just, just pick an important problem that move, that touch your heart. And then, because research is difficult, right? It's very demanding. If you work on a problem that's not meaningful to you, it's very hard to sustain, right? So you got to work on something that that, that you personally identify, have passion about. I mean, this is not cliche. For me, this is real. And also it's a problem that potentially can help the society to be better. Why not? Okay, so that's my first answer. And, and the second the question is about, let me paraphrase, because it's been a few minutes. <laughs> let me paraphrase what you were asking. Uh, it's, it's about the institution building work. Uh, that I have engaged in, um, what challenges did I encounter, right? Yeah, so. Um, the, 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 you know, my institution building work, it, it really starts with AMJ. That's a big service. <clears throat> I was in Hong Kong, studying a new department, as a new department head. We have, we're so busy. Um, I don't really know why I want to do it. Because I, I just, so, so I have to consult my colleagues, okay? Um, so the challenge was that I was the overseas, that was pre this data sharing, pre-cloud. Pre so every week they send me a box of Federal Express papers this high that we have to process, okay? So that's sort of you have to overcome the logistics difficulty of doing EMJ. So that was one thing that came to mind. But the, the um, studying the new journal, MOL, was another major, major uh, challenge because we're competing for papers. 
we're competing for good papers. As a new journal, it's very difficult to start a new journal. So at the end of the first issue, I was begging senior scholars to write for us, okay? I mean, James March wrote the first piece in the first issue. That was not too difficult. He was such a nice man that he said, oh, sure, I'll write for you. But everything after that was just really difficult. So in the second issue, second year, I almost wanted to let it go, just so it could have. And then I always, before I make a decision, I always try to consult with people. So I talked to John Child. Some of you may know John Child. And, and he said, and hang in there. We can make it work. I said, John, if you promise you stay with me and don't leave, <laughs> then I have the courage to continue. So he did. He, 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 he stayed with us for about four to five years, okay? So that's the second challenge. And I'll give you a third one, and then I'll talk about how junior scholar, whether or not you should do something like this. The, the third challenge is responsible research, which is the most challenging of all, because this project is for the whole field, global. It's for all business schools, okay? And it's trying to change the institution now of publishing in the top 50 journals in the five disciplines, okay? People who are successful don't want to change. What do you mean by, you know, taking, get away the journal? What do you mean by we don't count, we have to read papers, that's too hard, okay? Reading is easier, let the reviewers decide, but they've forgotten that the top journals, only 20% of paper got cited. 80% don't get any citations, one or two or three. So you cannot equate a, a journal publication is a quality work. That is just not true, all right? So that is the kind of problem we have in our field that we're trying to get people's mindset to say, we just cannot count a journals because that's not fair to junior faculty. That's not fair to the field of our development and that's not fair to businesses that's counting on us to produce some knowledge and that's not fair to the students that we have to teach about what is the important new knowledge for your career and for your future leadership right so something's fundamentally wrong about our system and this rlbm is trying to change that okay but we are making progress because the journals are changing you know amj bless his heart Laszlo right, had this editorial say, from less interesting to less important. That's his April editorial. It's a strong signal that work on problems that's important, not work on problems that's only interesting from the nation, right? So that's the journals are changing, right? AACSB accreditation is going to ask for impact data of your school in terms of research and teaching. That's coming down, you know, you know next time your school get reviewed for accreditation, the school has to produce documentation on what's the impact of your faculty's research on society. Okay, so that, that's coming. And finally, let me just say, this is not for junior scholars, okay? This is institution building work has to be reserved for people, old people like me, right? And, and I am lucky because I have been a journal editor, I've been a president of AOM, I've created associations, I've published some decent research. So I feel like, I feel like all my life I was prepared to do this job. 
this responsible research because if I don't have that background, nobody's gonna listen to me, right? The reason we have this co-community of the founding team is 24 scholars worldwide. They all past association presidents, journal editors in accounting, finance, operations, management, and so forth, right? The reason they would come together because they all believe. And the reason they trust me that this is a problem we should solve because I have some background to offer. So I say, if you care about many things in the world, your first thing you should care about is do good research on important problems, then earn your reputation to be a high quality scholar, then you'll be asked to be editor, you'll be asked to run for, for officer, and then think about your time. You know, some of our scholars never do that. Okay, like Jeff Feffer, he just doesn't do these things, but he's got a brain that we don't want him to do anything else except to do the right papers, right? So that's, that's, a, that's a good division of labor, okay? So you're one of those, research is your thing. Keep doing it. We won't blame you for not doing your service because your service is to create good knowledge for the rest of us, right? So that's my, so do your basic research well, teach well, then you, when you really care for our institution, then you can offer your service later on, okay? Sorry for answer. <laughs> uh, thanks. Uh, Jiao, uh, could you ask your questions by yourself? Sure. Uh, thanks, Anne. This is, uh, you know, really, really fantastic. And I love, I love the compassion you showed us and demonstrated for us, thinking back to your presidential address uh, in 2012 uh, at AOM. Um, so I, you know, I, I think listening to you, um, you know, I think all of these choices you made, right? I, I would love to know a little bit about also your thinking process, right? So a lot of these major undertakings, for example, uh, when you decided to go back to HKUST, uh, you had a very okay. stable, you know, you, you already made at UC Irvine and right. California is a lovely place. So yes. I just wanted to get a sense of, you know, what are you trading off um, and how do you make those decisions? Yeah, because yeah. I think those will, will be very, very helpful for all of us to, to think about. Thank you. Yeah, Zhao, thank you for that question. That's a very good question. It was not a, it was not a difficult decision, actually. <clears throat> I was tenured, our associate professor, um, and they, of course, they offered me a professorship to go there. Um, and um, I, um, I was from Hong Kong, right? I spent 12 years in Hong Kong, primary, secondary school. So I thought, well, yeah, maybe I could do something for Hong Kong. So it's just very naive, I'll do something for Hong Kong. And then I, um, um, I talked to my colleagues at UC Irvine, my dean about, about this. He said, well, you can take a two-year leave. We have official policy two-year leave. So I said, oh, good, then I'll go for two years, do what I can. And then at the end of the second, the middle second year, I need to decide, of course, who, how can you build a first class department in two years? It's literally impossible. So, so I um, decided to uh, stay and quit my job at UC Irvine. And, and, and so that, that's not a very complicated thinking process behind it, I just thought, you know, I've started this, job's not done. 
and and I was I should finish it. I mean, you know, my sense of responsibility, my sense of of um, of uh, I went to want to do something for Hong Kong. I couldn't start it and drop it, right? So that's um, so that's uh, and that kind of very you know it, it reminds me of the same thinking process I used when I was deciding to become academia academic instead of going back to a company. I have this naive thinking, oh maybe I can help more people. And say, oh maybe I can help Hong Kong. But as it turns out, I stay for eight years. Okay, but but what happened those eight years is it, it really changed my life totally because I'm not a traditional academic anymore. Right, I quickly go from a traditional OB HR researcher become international management. Okay, so, so I end up, all my research is published in traditional journals still, and, uh, and I been published in GIPS, um, but I studied Chinese phenomena and I created this association. So AIB decided to make me a fellow. So, so I, I was just thinking, how this all happened to me, you know? The only thing I can think about is when you feel like something is the right thing to do, move your heart, just do it. Don't be so calculative because if you do a good job, if it's a good thing to do and it's not all for yourself, good things are going to happen to you. So. Thanks. Thank, Thank you. you. Um, next, uh, Nina. Nina Tens. Um, Could you unmute yourself? Yeah. Hi, and uh, thank you again for um, sharing. Um, I identified with a lot of uh, the values you grew up with as well. Um, I'm curious about um, when you told um, us the story of, of how you fell in love with research during your PhD, um, what sparked your love for research during that time um, such that you didn't want to go back to your industry job? Yeah. Thank you. That's a good question. Um, nothing dramatic. You know, I, um, I always liked research, but I didn't know I liked it so much. Uh, my undergraduate, I did honors thesis, which is an experiment. Uh, you try to figure out why babies cry when they see strangers. <laughs> that was kind of my first research project. And then I did a my master's at Minnesota. We had a choice of coursework or do a thesis. So I chose to do thesis. I did my research on job satisfaction. Um, and then when I was working at the first job, actually it was before control data, I, I was working at University of Minnesota hospitals and I was working with the nurses about nursing turnover problems. So I write a paper about nursing turnover, try to estimate the cost of turnover. And I send that paper, finish it. So I send that paper into, uh, into, uh, into American Hospital Association Journal, JHA, right? Journal of American Hospital Association. And it was acceptance first submission. So, so it was because all my research kind of been really good. And you know, after I went to uh, UCLA, I, um, I um, had the fortune of uh, Charles O'Reilly was there for the fall semester. And so he was not teaching, he was ready to go up to Berkeley. So, so my mentor at that time was Anderson. He said, John Anderson, he said, well, take an independent study with Charles O'Reilly. So, you know, Charles O'Reilly is such a good researcher. You know, you talk to him, you know, he's, his heart is just kind of his buckles and he's just going all over the place. So just a, a, a conversation with him just inspired me about, you know, solving problems and puzzles. And then, and then I was working on a project with him 
and we, we present it in, and we send it to JAP, and then JAP come back and, and, and said, fatal flaw, common method variance. So Charles O'Reilly said the paper is dead. He just literally threw it into the trash can. So I learned about that this is great. We spend all the time doing a project. We can just throw it away. So in other words, research is something that you don't have to be always be successful. I mean, that you just find the problems you like, you work on it, and, and, and also just do the best. Make sure you don't have this fatal flaw again, you know. So, so in other words, the whole first semester is, uh, was taking a few classes, all being socialized by Charles O'Reilly. And then the next semester, our mentor, John Anderson, took a group of students up to Berkeley to listen to Jeff Pfeffer because Jeff doesn't travel. He would never travel to give a seminar. If you have luck to get him, that's unusual, okay? So, so John wanted us to listen to Jeff Pfeffer. So he brought six students, paid for our FA, we went up to see Jeff Pfeffer and listen to his seminar. So, so, so that kind of first year treatment made me realize that academic life is really lots of fun, you know? You can just go to places and you can work on projects. If it doesn't work, no problem, work on a second project. So it's just nothing but fun. So of course my dissertation was fun, you know, it was really, so it was easy. I don't have finding a problem, question problem. I don't have data problem, you know? And then I have to collect data. We have to go follow up, get questionnaires back. I, I, I collect a three round paper. And I have a friend who would get up at five o'clock to make phone calls to the East Coast for me. You know, it just, it was a blast. So, so having a good environment the first year is really important, okay? So I don't know whether I answer your question, Jao, but that's what you triggered me to think about talking. Thank you. Uh, next questions, uh, Stephen, uh, would you like to ask your question by yourself? Yes, thank you. Um, thanks, Anne, for sharing your very inspiring story with us. Now I have two questions, just listening to what you answer. Um, the first one is, how many projects have you thrown away uh, when you said uh, research project, you, are not, you may not be always successful, that you throw away projects. So that's what I want to know about, how many projects that you actually throw away, that you know they're not successful. And returning to my first question that I want to ask you, um, you mentioned that nowadays there are many problems, important problems that you cannot start off with uh, literature review, that a lot of answers we cannot get from what we know as the body of knowledge. Um, I can't agree with you anymore on this because quite recently I worked with my PhD students on artificial intelligence. So of course, the way we train, we are trained, we start off with a lit review. We um, review the literature and we look for, we draw conceptual maps and then we try to identify the research gap. And once we started with this, we noticed we couldn't even do this because artificial intelligence is so multidisciplinary and we don't even have a lot of dominant theories or whatever that we can draw on. Um, so I want to ask you more uh, in this kind of important and um, uh, important problems for us, for managers, how should we try to tackle this from an academic perspective? How should we start off with uh, working, tackling these problems? Um, is inductive research what you are hinting at? Mm -hmm. Okay, so basically your second question is about new problems. There's no existing theories that can inform mm -hmm. those questions and, and they are multidisciplinary in nature. So how does one begin to work on them, right? 
Yeah, because this is how we train in our PhD program. And how do you, you train the literature? Ah, yeah, yeah, that's what I mean as well. Yes. Okay. Or even for myself. Right? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a that's that's that. I mean, if I if I had to start today as a young scholar. Um, I think I'm going to have to take different set of classes, first of all. I don't think that set of classes that were taught is going to be enough. If you want to work in the AI, you better go to engineering school to take some classes from there, for example. Right? So that's, that's really very, very, the, the technical aspect of it is important. Uh, but there are different kinds of uh, topics in, in, in AI. There's always an ethics issue, there's a management issue, there's work, worker AI interface issues. So, so, so yeah, so let me, let me answer your first question first. How many projects have I thrown away? Uh, quite a few. Um, beginning with my dissertation, I um, uh, had two major papers I wanted to write and a number of other side papers. So one is the one on um, the testing the main hypothesis about the managers who are have gained reputation with all three groups. They were promoted more often, they get higher salary increases and so forth. So they established a reputational concept. And that was published in BHTP. And then I have another paper is about antecedents of reputational effectiveness. That paper I sent it to ASQ, got it. I don't remember if that's reject or first rejection, but it was pretty quick. And basically is that it's weak theory, very weak theory. So I looked at it and I thought about it. I say, yeah, I'm not even convinced myself there's some common method variance problem. Then there's social structural determinants of reputational effectiveness as a basic idea. So I just wasn't strong enough in theory at that time. So I said, okay, I'm not gonna bother with it. It was published in the best proceedings of the Academy Conference that year, but I, in, in my, if I had reworked it, it probably would end up in some journal, right? But I decided I just don't want to spend because I was taught that if a project is not going to be the best project, if you're not going to be proud of that paper, drop it. So, <laughs> so oh. that's extreme. Yeah. See, I have a follow-up question on that. We all know whatever we publish, it kind of constitutes the identity of ourselves. Um, we see people, some they publish on various kinds of journals, focusing on one topic, so they build up an identity of themselves. Right. Some others, they throw the projects away uh, and just publishing the top tier journals. And of course, like for example, 80% of the papers, they cannot see the light. Um, right. right. So how would you comment on this two oh, that's, that, that extreme answer, strategy? That, the answer is simple, simple. Hmm. As a social scientist, I come back to that question, we have the identity, our identity it's not a paper production machine. Mm -hmm. Our identity is a social scientist trying to Correct. solve some problem in society, in business, okay? So we cannot be experts on everything. We only can be experts on something, right? Let's come back to your question. What do I care about, okay? And your, change may, your interest may change over time. Like me, my interest changes over time any, many times but I began interested in managerial effectiveness, right? If I'm a student today, I probably won't look at that topic. That's not an important topic anymore. There are more important topics there. So my answer is look at a problem that you care a lot about. Think about it as a program of research, you're gonna come into the next five to 10 years to work on it. Something mm -hmm. else can come along, but you don't want to invest in a project, project just one paper and then you're in, because your reputation is built on multiple papers. Okay, 
So a program of research, is this problem big enough for me to carry a program research for a number of years? And I never write one paper on a topic. I always write minimally three or four papers on it before my name will be associated with something people recognize. So that's that. Yeah. I, I, mean, I am not shy about advising that to all students. I mean, the current approach of, you know, one paper this topic, one paper that topic, you're a jack of all trades, you're an expert right. in nothing. It's just not a social science, social scientist. Yeah. So you, you, know, you want to be experts for something. Okay. In the natural sciences, people are experts of one thing. But for us, we can be experts of several things. So. Thanks for sharing. It's great for me to start off a winter morning. I'm in Sydney at the moment. Thank great you. Thank, Thank you. you. So, uh, next questions. Uh, Jing, Jing Tan, uh, would you like to ask? Oh, hey. Um, yes. Uh, I'm okay. Jing. Are you in Hawaii also? Uh, uh, sorry? Are you in Hawaii also? No, it's just a virtual background. Uh, actually, I'm now in West Lafayette. Uh, so I was in my first year PhD in Purdue, Brennan. Ah, okay, okay. <laughs> so uh, actually, I am so impressed by uh, your uh, middle manager's topic. Uh, you talk about this uh, dissertation story before, right? So actually, I, I think I have some uh, similar backgrounds with you. And also, I want to work on the middle manager's topic, but um, uh, sorry, I didn't have the time to go over your uh, dissertation, that paper. So, yeah, so I can only like ask you some question like, so do you think that middle manager topic uh, is still promising nowadays? Because um, yeah, when I want to do this kind of topic, my advisor said um, there are some limitations if I want to work on this topic. First about the data and second about like, it, there are only tiny group like people who are still yeah. working on this. Yeah. <clears throat> what kind of suggestions do you make? Well, um, when I was a student, mm -hmm. the whole industrial s s setup, the economy mm -hmm. is different from today. When I was a student, big corporations is the thing, right? So there are lots of middle managers. Okay. Now the world has changed. There are not as many middle managers. Your supervisor is right. Because think about e-commerce, they have is all professional workers, right? Who are their managers, right? It's not so clear, right? So, so instead of say this rank, it, maybe you can ask yourself, you're interested in a manager's job, right? Okay, so, so but that's also too late, right? Manager, of what industry, for example, right? Of what industry, um, manager in which kind of social cultural context, okay? So a middle manager, a managers uh, managing in the gig economy versus is online e-commerce versus SMEs, Right, mm -hmm. production, service, SMEs, right? They're all different in nature. Mm -hmm. so, so, so change your focus a little bit to look at the problems that these managers may have direct linkage to. 
So in other words, you cannot understand a manager's job in a vacuum. Because I could at that time, because middle managers, it's a real job, right? They, they're all, you know, R&D, marketing, administration, they, they're this heavy layer, okay? Mm -hmm. And that, that layer is basically gone today, okay? So maybe you can look at uh, 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 SMEs is the largest producers of jobs in the world, okay, the small, small firms. So, so there are first-line supervisors, there's the owner, and then all these director of finance, director of sales, director of manufacturing, all these directors, they're middle managers, basically. They're called executives, but they're basically middle managers, okay? Mm -hmm. So maybe focus on those, and how do they actually, and their tension within the firm, trying to piece this one boss, I think about SMEs, we only have one boss, right? And then all the workers. So what are the nature of their jobs? So, so in other words, think about manage, managers in a context, not in vacuum, okay? And yeah. then look at the context that you're interested in and then ask whether or not there's something about these middle managers that I'd like to know something about. So what is it that you want to find out about? What's the question, okay? And then maybe you can talk to some of them to say, what are the challenges in your job? Thank you so much. You, you need to concretize it a little bit more. Yeah, so it doesn't mean that you cannot study it, but you need to contextualize that question. Okay, I hope that's helpful. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much. Okay, you're welcome. So thanks. Go, go back to your earlier points, right? Put the contacts into the research question. Exactly. Um, uh, Next questions uh, is uh, Xiaowei, uh, Yang Xiaowei around. Uh, would you, could you ask your question? It's, it's very specific also related to uh, your, your, your study, your, your specific study in, in the PhD program. Yeah, thank, thank you. And uh, thank you for sharing in both in life and the research and uh, I think you are really a person with passion and very clear, well, very clear about what you, you are looking for. And uh, I appreciate both the two. Um, now I will, I will start my first year in PhD in one or two months. And uh, uh, before I, I go back to the school for study, I have 10 years working experience in HR management in China. In China. Um, so that I, I, have, I'm very, uh, I have a little poor in the foundational research skills and uh, theories, but I'm really interested in it. And um, now my study is aiming to the OBHR, maybe, maybe focus on the plant for HR management or some other topics according to my professor and the team. Um, could you give me some advice in this condition? Thank you very much. And uh, in this special area, take care of yourself. Thank you. Thank you, Xiaowei, very much uh, for your care. Um, so you, you have a rich, um, a, a really rich HR experience, uh, 10 years in China. Um, is that in one industry or is it in multiple industries? I'm just curious to see what's um, In many different industries. Oh, I see. Okay, so that breadth is very yeah. helpful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so um, 
and HR is a very important field. As I, you know, the, we have, um, uh, I think, um, uh, where you going to school? I forgot. I didn't. Uh, you, where are you going to start your PhD? Uh, also in in China, Shanghai. Oh, in Shanghai. Okay. Okay. All right. Okay. Um, so, so you want to probably focus on the human resource aspect. Um, and uh, I guess I'm not sure what's your question. Um, you, 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 if you feel strongly about the HR field, then you should focus on what are the challenges of this field in China. I know Chinese companies are, they are <clears throat> there's, there's a very active group of HR executives that get together. Uh, they have a WeChat platform. So, so HR is a very important field in business. And also there's um, uh, certainly a, a, a critical mass of researchers in HR in China as well. So I would, uh, my, my student actually, um, Kevin Wang did a, <laughs> did a dissertation on human resources. So, so I suppose just live in the literature. Don't forget your experience. Mm. And I would not throw that away. You have such rich 10 years of experience, draw on them. You probably have lots yeah. of network, lots of friends. They can potentially be very helpful to you when you're ready to do a dissertation. Um, and and, and uh, so uh, define a problem that, that's meaningful to them. And, yeah. and I'm sure you're gonna get help from them because HR community is dying for help in terms of knowledge to help how to manage HR function better in China, in Chinese firms. So yeah, just focus, keep your focus and don't get distracted by, uh, by uh, uh, other things. You're gonna, you're gonna have lots of distractions <laughs> when you get into yeah. the program. So, uh, so when you have advisors wanting to build, bring you to field trips, um, try to choose an advisor that you really like their project and don't choose it just because it's this advisor pays you better than another advisor. Don't do that. Yeah, I, I get it. Okay. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Sure. Thank you. It's mm -hmm. great, great. Uh, there's, uh, M, there's a couple of questions that uh, participants key in when they register for the session. I'm not sure whether they are in this room right now, but uh, this is one question which I think it's important. You sort of uh, mentioned this earlier. It's, you know, research is at some point of time, it's like co-author with your friends. And so mm -hmm. the question that uh, these participants ask is, uh, what advice uh, would you give to the junior scholars on how to choose a co-author? Because eventually it's going to do a teamwork, right? And then who is the partner, how right. <clears throat> working right. style, et cetera, will be important. Right, right. Well, different people give different advice. Mine so may be a little different. And, and <clears throat> I, I use the metaphor of, as a junior scholar, you're learning to, to do research. Um, if you want to learn how to play tennis, you find the best coach you can. So as a junior scholar, when you do research, always find the co-author who's better than you. Better than you in methods, in theory, construction, 
uh, in writing. Okay. So, but probably um, overall research experience is important. Um, so I would, I would, that would be my first advice. Um, the second is, um, make sure that the person is a fair player. You check out the reputation of the person. Do they carry their share? All right. So somebody may be really successful, lots of publications, but they have a reputation for some, especially I know in some, in China, some advisors papers, they got tons of tons of papers, the students write them. <laughs> so I don't mean to, this is not very nice of me to say that, but as a student, I'm trying to think in terms of student junior authors, for your, for your well-being, I really feel that you should, should, should um, uh, choose carefully uh, who you work with as collaborators. And, uh, and, and, but um, develop your own skills. You can lean on your mentors only for so long. You have to, to make sure that you have the skills to be independent eventually. So that means if you have to take one more methods class, do that. If it means that even when you're assistant professor, you can still go to another department to take a class on a particular problem or theory, okay? So sharpen your skills, that's very important because um, when you lean on somebody to do the analysis for you, if that person's wrong, your reputation's on the line and, uh, and if, you, if the paper got lucky enough to be published, and for example, I know there was one scholar who very distinguished, he trusted the co-author, there was a problem, the paper got rejected, you know, not rejected, retracted after it's published. So protect your reputation, build your own skills, lean on senior people, senior collaborators, to, to work, to teach you. And then, see, I work with Charles O'Reilly. He was my mentor, right? Two papers, that's it. I never work with him again. I feel like I need to be independent, okay? So that's a junior scholar. And senior people really like to work with junior people too, because you have fresh ideas, you're diligent, right? <laughs> they only contribute their idea and maybe write this first five pages, right? <laughs> So, but that's good division of labor, it's fair, but they have to do their part, okay? So that probably, you said more than yeah, I said. thanks. <laughs> Thank you, co-working, learning, just like a joint venture, right? So we have to learn over the time, right, learn right. from partners, right. learn from others, and right. care about the reputations. Um, uh, Jiao, you have a following up question? Um, if only there's time. Um, Okay, um, yes. so I think, um, so I guess for uh, the other question I had for Anne is um, for the RRBM project, uh, major, major undertaking responsible